So we went up to Big Bear. This was in the summer. And we're kind of like up on the mountain, like Snow Summit and Bear Mountain. We kind of snuck our car out there and we're driving around like up on the ski mountain, you know. And we're looking at different chairs. And if you're not familiar, these things are way off the ground. I mean, they're like telephone poles and some of the cables are really high, 40 feet in the air. And she found one where there was these two white chairs and they were just how she wanted with space, like facing away from each other, kind of at a, a good spacing. And it was about 40 feet up in the air. And she goes like, that's the one I want. She points up at it. And I'm like, I'm like I don't think this is, a, you know, this is not going <laughs> to yeah, work. Yeah, wanted them to be white, so chairs. Yeah. And it's not very common. Yeah, because you have white like chairs. Uh, all different like metal chairs, this, this mm. color and that. So... So she's said like, that with well, such contempt. Green. <laughs> Green chairs. They have no place in my work. So she goes, I'm going to climb up this tower, up the ladder, and then I'm going to just grab onto the cable and just, like, move out onto the, into this thing. And I'm like, you have no idea how hard it is to just hang dead weight on, like, a thick metal cable. Also, you know? like, aren't there, like, people... Like who not are in charge of yeah, making you not guy. do that? Yeah. Like yeah. their whole that, job is don't do that. that. That's the risk on every shoot. So that's not a particular one for this. I'm John Mahias. John in Manhattan. This is Zach Smith here in Los Angeles. Hey everybody, this is Weed Art, Art, a podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist about... It's <laughs> as if I project what I imagine onto the real world. And this is why I wouldn't really say that I'm a photographer, because it's very rare that I see something in the real world and then it turn into one of my scenes. It's the other way around. This week we have Glenn Perlody talking about... I'm basically like doing exactly what I imagine could be like an ideal world for me. Because I can do my costumes, I can work with Plexi, I do the sculptures. It's true that it covers all the different medium and material that I love to work with. In her studio in South Central Los Angeles, which is lovely and full of translucent colored plexiglass and plastic of various kinds, which is exactly what you were hoping for. <laughs> How you doing? Good. All right. How did he say your name? Did he do a good job? Yeah, he did actually. Oh, good. Uh, so you're from? France. Which part? I grew up in Southwest of France. Okay. Not too far from Spain. Were you like coastal? No, actually not at all. I never lived next to the ocean. Mm. It's more inland. I grew up in a very, very isolated place in the countryside. Like a village? Not even a village. So like two there roads? Wasn't, yeah, there was a church, no stores, no post office, only a few houses. So was church the main business? Mm, maybe, yeah. Say was maybe there the no most. Ca- cows or anything like that? Yes, I wear cows too. Okay, so there were some farms. Yeah. Was there a grocery store? No. How did you get your milk and your pudding or whatever? From the cows, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we would make our own uh, food. So no, it's not true. We would. <laughs> the closest village was like 15 minutes away. 
So we would go to the closest village. Were your parents farmers? No, no, no. Both my parents were art restorators. Oh, oh, art restorers. Would they work on big paintings or sculptures? Uh, so my mom used to restore very old paintings for museums or private collectors. And my dad used to restore very old pieces of furniture from uh, Louis XIV. Right, right. The pieces that he would restore were marquetterie. It's very, marquetry. Yeah, yeah marquetry. Yeah, yeah. So it's very intricate and very meticulous so they were pieces kind of, of wood. Living out there and yeah. being in that field, they were like respected in the field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were really uh, good and they made the choice to move to a very isolated place just before I was uh, born, actually. So did you have like a lot of art around you? Yeah, growing? yeah, yeah. I was very exposed to art from a very young age. Mm. I would spend time with them in their studios because they had their studios on the property. It was a, a, an interesting childhood. Yeah. It sounds like it. Did you learn all of the oil techniques and stuff like that? No, 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 no. My mom, she would organize like little art classes for me and my sister. Mm -hmm. But it was very uh, open, you mm -hmm. know, sometimes we would draw with pastels, sometimes we would do paintings, but we were very free. I, I never had the same experience as you, actually. <laughs> right, right. This is like the Frenchest thing ever. Did you, <laughs> did you watch a lot of TV? I'm guessing no. 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 I knew it. <laughs> no SpongeBob for you. <laughs> no. Yeah, I would have uh, access to TV, but only... Uh, when my parents decided it was a good moment. So you're like one of those, the parents decide when the child is yeah. like three that you'll be a tennis star. No. And they just play tennis all the time <laughs> and they live isolated life and they're just become really good at tennis. And then they're older, they're like, I love tennis. I'm really good at it. You see your life. No, 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 no. And in a way, their job wasn't actually really free because they were never really creating something new, they were restoring very old pieces of art. Yeah, their so craft. It's a different approach. Were you thinking from a young age that you would be an artist? Uh, I went to art school. In Paris? Yeah, in Paris. But when I was at school, I didn't see the end of my studies as something, um, I don't know if it's a French mentality, but I didn't see myself ending school and starting a career as an artist, like right after school. Yeah. I was a bit uh, structured, you yeah. know, from my teachers. I needed to find a job in the art field. But as right. we all know, it's so broad. And maybe also I didn't have the confidence. Mm -hmm to create my own uh, art right so, away. So did you have some other jobs when you yes. came out of school? Yes, so I was uh, working as an assistant for a production company for photo shoots. Oh, this makes sense. Yeah. Because your work is very much uh, involved in the tools that come out of production. Yeah, it's true. I think for me it was a good timing because I learned a lot and it gave me a sense also of uh, independence with my money, to live by myself, to just experience a bit um, 
the world yeah, by myself. Cool. Was, was it commercials or films yeah. mostly? Yeah. yeah, yeah. At first in Paris, I was working for Getty Images. Oh, okay. Getty's like a very well-known stock photography yeah. house, if you don't know. They had a, a department in Paris where they would produce a cover for magazines with celebrities. Mm -hmm. So I used to be the assistant of the director of this department. And uh, it was very intense. I liked it, but I knew it wasn't really ultimately what I would like to do with my life. It seems like a lot of your images are the vocabulary of idealization, yeah. but just changed enough that it never feels quite like a commercial image. Commercial images can be very strange and surreal. Yeah, you yeah. know, like they don't have to be just like a palm tree in the blue sky, but even then there's something about your pictures that always is like oblique. Yeah. Um, do you feel like you were influenced by the content of those things? Was that interesting? Because it seems no. like these are kind of in some ways about commercial imagery while not being commercial imagery. Yeah, I see. A commentary. I see what you mean. But I wasn't influenced by the content of the productions and the photo shoots that we were organizing back then because it was only portrait. Mm, okay. Portrait of an actor. Right. Or, but what I keep from that time is more like the production side. Yeah. And the way I create my images involve a lot of uh, production. Are there a lot of other people besides you no. or only you? No, it's me and my husband, Carl, who comes with me for the day of the shoot yeah. and he actually takes a picture because mm -hmm. I'm inside of all my images. That's always you. Yes. So I have a wig, I build my costumes, I work by myself most of the time. Well, that's like different than most production because most production they yeah. it's organized i know like matthew barney is even when he's making a photo he's like i feel like more comfortable being like a filmmaker you know yeah right? yeah yeah I but see. you were like i want to be alone is it practical really? yeah. or is it also not the hectic for right now it's because it's more practical especially when i scout for all my locations i feel i'm the only one who can really imagine the scene mm. You know, I could work with different uh, scouting people, but at the end of the day, I would still have to go to each location and see if I feel something. Yeah, the, most of the jobs involved are things that you would have to yeah. make sense. But maybe later, I wouldn't mind having an assistant. If you get a big someone, enough Yes, yeah. yes, yes. But for right now, we have a good uh, team with right. my husband. That's good that you can work with them. Sometimes you can't work with a close person like that. Yeah. And actually, he has been one of the most important person at the beginning of my uh, creation of those series. He was the first one who really believed in me and trusted me enough to follow me. The first image was shot in New York. Mm -hmm. It's a crocodile image. Orange the, crocodile? Yeah, yeah, orange crocodile. You know, he had no idea of what I imagine to shoot or he never saw any of my work and uh, he trusted me and it gave me really the confidence that I needed at the beginning to really pursue what I envision and we did it you know we did the first image this was in 2014 mm -hmm. so it's kind of 
recently. Yeah. When you have an idea for something that's going to take a long time to、yeah. realize, you can describe it to other people. They never understand. Yeah, exactly. The, the artist who thought up the idea is the only one who can see how、yeah. it's a good idea、exactly. <laughs> until it's made. When you're like, "Well, I want it to be photo, but kind of flat and yeah, not yeah, yeah. flat." Yeah, exactly. Like, it doesn't make any sense to anyone、yeah. else until you see it. So、yeah. I can see like it being hard to communicate. And a lot of people didn't understand why I would stop working and then suddenly start creating images, especially in France. People they have the tendency to think that if you are young,、yeah. you have to start really at the bottom. Maybe to assist another artist for ten years, and then maybe you can start doing your own art. But it's not a place for me,、yeah. personally, where I felt very encouraged.、Mm-hmm. And this is one of the reasons why I decided to move. To a different country. So you're in Paris doing production, and then you went、yes. to New York and started. No,、What、I moved to London for one year. This was kind of a difficult year for me. I was working for a different company also in a photography agency. I learned a lot, and it was interesting. But this is when really I knew I, it wasn't really for me. I don't know. Overall, it was a difficult year for me in London. So I decided to move. Somewhere else, and I knew I didn't want to go back to France, so I decided to move to the U.S. But I had never been to the U.S. when I moved, so it was kind of a bold move. So it was just imagining that it would be.、Something. Yeah, I I just had a, a really strong feeling that for some reason it was the place for me,、mm-hmm. and so I had to apply to get a visa. Was, were you getting an artist visa? Or you no, no, no. Because、company? back then I didn't have anything、uh, right, right. out there, so I applied for a visa, and so it was with a different photography agency.、Mm-hmm. I got the job,、yeah. and I got a visa for a bit more than a year. So I was working with this company, and after two years, I got fired from the company. What did you do? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> No, but it was.、Um, What'd you do? I was. <laughs> What'd you do? I was. <laughs> so I had this job with this company. I was working at the same time as a freelance production、uh, assistant to make more money. Yeah. And yeah, this is what happened basically. And so it was not well received. Oh, that you were working yeah, at the yeah, same. Yeah. I think it was perfect timing、yeah. because. Maybe、uh, I would have gotten even more involved in that field,、yeah. and I needed money, obviously. But I'm happy it happened. Right. And so at that moment, I was like, okay, well, I don't want to work for another company. What can I do? So I was thinking maybe I could help another artist, work on the side, and then we shot the first image during a summer. In New York, and then it started. Someone saw it immediately. No, after three of the images completed,、yeah. out of the fifteen that composed the first series, the jungle. Yeah, jungle series. Someone saw my work and decided to sponsor me. Where did they see it? They just saw it on my phone. Actually,、uh, we、oh, were、so、talking and at a party or like. Yeah, it's somebody this- that no Carl. Because、uh, he's a, a filmmaker.、Yeah. Yes. He was making films at the time. Yes. So it was very unexpected. I mean, I never imagined it could be possible. So I was very、um, 
it gave me so much confidence and so much strength just to finish the series, you know, because I had this backup. I knew uh, I didn't have to work for somebody else. So all my time, you know, I could dedicate to my uh, project and it was really a great opportunity. You went to art school and then you spent a bunch of time working yeah. and then you went back to making this work. Yeah. What kind of work were you making in school? Like, how did that transition go? Were you like making paintings and then they turned into these drawings and the drawings turned into... Actually, some of the projects that I was developing during that time in school are very similar to what I'm doing right now with the choices of the colors, just so we explain a bit how I course, work and yeah. develop my uh, art here. So for each image that I create, I imagine the scene in my head. Then I do sketches and I create a maquette of the scene. So those are the maquettes. They are right. yeah. this format. It's a little drawing. Yeah, right? a little painting, collage. Mm -hmm. And then from this maquette, I create the final image. So I have to find the location. I design the costumes. And then I shoot the final image. But during the whole process, I am always referring to the first original idea. Yeah. After, in post-production, I change the saturation of the sky. So that it looks like a backdrop rather than the real sky. Like yeah, but um, I only uh, change the saturation. So each sky, or if it's in the water, I keep the texture. It's mm. just, I... Uh, Crank it up. Yes, yes. You have this deep blue. It looks like Klein yes. International. Klein. Yes, yes, yes. It's on purpose, like you like that. Yes. From a very young age, I always use this color for all my projects. Mm -hmm. I discovered this color in my dad's uh, studio mm -hmm. because he would use so many different pigments to recreate colors for his art restoration. Yeah, yeah. So I discovered this blue, and it was Klein blue. Yeah. I, I, for people who don't know, Yves Klein, the artist in the 60s, basically trademarked a color, yes. which is just a dark Prussian blue, really. But he calls it international Klein blue. Yes. But it's very recognizable as a sort of deep dark blue. It's used in a lot of things in France in public. Yes, works, actually, you know? it's, like it's, it's like true a, because of the flag is red, white, and blue, and the, I mean, the bus will have this blue. Or that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true that it's more used in Europe, mm -hmm. I would say. But also, for example, in Mexico, they use a lot this color. But my blue is a bit darker than the Klein blue, mm -hmm. so it's a bit different. At school, it was my main color, yeah. too. So and you were the blue girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In school, were you a painter? Or were you a photographer? I was using uh, all sorts of medium. I never had, like, photography classes. So, mm. so it was more graphic design, painting, uh, sculptures. I was touching a lot of different medium, but I would always use photography at some point in all my projects. But sometimes I was doing an installation and I had to take pictures of the installation to be able to present it. For example, if it was an installation that wouldn't uh, last, but I never uh, used photography to create a, a photo. What are artists that were interesting to you starting out? So I was never really, really drawn to uh, photographers. So I would say more painters. I really liked the surreal movement. Mm -hmm. It really inspired me. And it's something when I was younger that I would always be interested in. 
they seem so influential in a way, partially because they took a tendency that was in art history all along, like in medieval paintings, but they kind of solidified it was this dream imagery. It's almost like they discovered something yeah. rather than invented because now everyone can just use it, but without being a classical surrealist. Yeah, you know, yeah, like... yeah. But what I liked about their uh, way of thinking is that they would let themselves go into developing all those ideas and all those pieces of art. It was more uh, spontaneous, which I like. Is the world that you are making um, a utopian world? If I had to live in a place yeah. every day, I would love to be surrounded by all my colors, the materials that I use. Since I'm very young, actually, I've always been drawn to very intense colors. I would say it's a sort of utopia, yeah. Is Paradis your real name? No. Okay, because it's a coincidence if it is, because they are utopian images. No, I know, you know, like I know. So Ren is my yeah, yeah. real name. When I was young, I always wanted to change my first name because Ren in French means queen. Mm -hmm. When I was young, it was very hard. It's as if you are called king. Yeah, yeah. You know, at school, it's... oh, she's doing the queen. <laughs> you know, like people would tease me. People wouldn't believe that my name was queen. Yeah. And nobody is called Queen in France. Like, it's a very, very old name. So your parents were, like, very arty. My sister, who is two years older than me, is called Mary. <laughs> so it's kind of... If I, if I heard Mary, I'd be a little bit like, what's she doing these days? Is she, like, fucking sister? <laughs> Mary, so that's... It's Do you guys a bit, get along? Uh, <laughs> Mary and Queen. <laughs> oh. It was difficult, but uh, when I turned 18, yeah. so I moved out of my uh, home at 17. And when I turned 18, it was really a good thing for me to be called queen because people would remember. So if I was on a job or if I was, I don't know, like going out at night and I met this person who knew uh, somebody. And no, I that's a good point. It yeah. was a good... In production, uh, especially because you start as just one of 90 people in a lot Yeah. And you're like, oh, you need a donut, ask a queen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so from that moment, I really realized actually I could uh, use it to my advantage. So I never wanted to change Ren after this. But my last name, I uh, never liked my last name either. And I made the decision actually when we shot the first image, we were talking with my husband one night and um, it kind of came naturally. From that moment, I kept it. Hmm. So this one, you made the drawing of this water tower. Mm -hmm. So that's the okay. maquette. And you're standing on top yep. with the bird. And then you went and found a water tower that matched the drawing. Yep. And you had never seen this water tower before. No. You just know somewhere out there, there's a white yeah. water tower. There has to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For practically all my um, images, I imagined the location before. For this yeah. particular one, I shot it in uh, South LA. I found a place where um, there were many, many water tanks. Luckily, I knew someone who did a photo shoot there like years ago, and he knew the guy who was keeping the place every day. Mm. And so I went there, I met him, and I, I showed him the maquette. I told him, you know, I would need to come back to scout 
for the lighting. I wanted to have the shadow like this. So I scouted for a few days and then uh, we went there and we shot. And also something that was important was the angle for the frame. I wanted it to be shot from kind of the same height as so the, the perspective yes. doesn't change so that you don't seem... I didn't want it to be shot from underneath. Because it's a cylinder. So if you're standing on top and it's a cylinder, it'll look very curved. Yeah, and I yeah. wanted it to be really two-dimensional. Yeah, yeah. It, it was difficult because I had to find a water tank with something else in front so we could shoot. Stand on the other thing. And yeah. so Carl had to uh, go up another water tank to shoot. How long did it take between making the drawing and... To find the um, maybe a year. Wow. But for this one... Looking for that white whale. <laughs> it was actually dangerous because the top was very, very uh, flimsy mm -hmm. and very thin. Yeah. It was an old water tank, so it was filled with birds and like old water. Like a stagnant pond? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. They were going to be destroyed, all those water tanks. Yeah. So inside this picture, which yeah. is like a beautiful dark blue and a white and then a little orange speck, inside of this picture, there's like a completely different picture yes. of like decaying birds. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. You're so patient. Do you ever make one and then you can find the location? It doesn't exist. I was about to ask that too. What if you have a space shuttle on your mind? Yeah, that's a good question. So far, I created 30 of those images. I'm working on the next one, mm -hmm. which will be a totally different colors. This is the ones we're looking at, these are green. So my second yellow. series is still with this deep blue, lime, neon colors for my costumes and the props. This new series is called Midnight, and I wanted to uh, seem as if it's shot under a blue moon. Mm. So for this series, I had no white. I changed all my whites into, I call it aqua paradis, the color, <laughs> a little turquoise, but still very bright. It was much more complicated actually, especially in post-production for my second series. Because you have to make the skin look like it has a light on it without... No, the skin actually, what I don't change it. I shoot always around noon, very harsh light. I kept the same technique. So I didn't change anything on the body, but it was more uh, difficult because also I was working with a lot of uh, translucent materials compared to the first uh, series. So this one was more challenging. Yeah, these early ones don't have as many of those translucents. Yeah. Are there ones where you never found a location? You draw it and then you can't find that anywhere in the world. So far, it never really happened. But as I was explaining, if I can't find the right location for the series that I'm working at the moment, yeah. I'll always keep the idea. I, I do like little sketches. I, I have like everything uh, classified in little books. And then I know one day, eventually, I can find the right location. But so far, I didn't have ideas of places that seemed really impossible to find. Well, this one you have a drawing of, it looks like you have fallen through part of the architecture, like a, a sticking up part of the roof. Yeah. And then the roof has cleanly Open. opened up. So, so for this one, it's interesting because it's the only one that I developed from the location. 
Oh, so you saw this yeah. roof that looked like it's yeah. split, and you're like, oh, it looks like someone has fallen through this roof. So. I liked it. This location is the roof of a 7-Eleven in mm. uh, Venice Beach. Okay. When I moved to LA, so in 2012, immediately I saw this location. When I would drive, or I would always take pictures of, of this location because I thought it was so interesting. And I never saw locations like this. Like in Europe, it's so different. You know, you, you would never have a building like this. It's funny because, like, I always think of there being so much variety in the buildings in Europe. When I land, I, like, look around in the city anyway. Yeah. I'm like, oh, they're trying so hard and compared to where I live. But I guess, you know, you go somewhere else, it seems. Yeah, it's the opposite. <laughs> foreign, the foreign eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I had never traveled to the U.S., even if I saw documentaries or movies or pictures of the, you know, like California, I was still very uh, virgin. I wasn't exposed to this kind of architecture. Yeah. Right away, it really, really inspired me. It has a simplicity. Like your work is has a certain simplicity to it. And yeah. there's a lot of simplicity in American architecture because a lot of it is post-mass production. I'm naturally drawn to very geometrical shapes. Even for my costumes, they are very straight cuts, almost like kids' clothes. Like paper dolls. Yes. What are you looking to tell people with your costumes? There is no like aim or... Uh, like specific goal when I create okay. a costume. It's just how I I imagine the scene. So surreal, perhaps. Yes, 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 yes. So you came from London to LA. You said you mentioned you were worried a little bit at first when you when you got to LA. You were like, success. This is what I want. Did that happen immediately? Uh, you mean with my uh, with my art? Well, we could talk about both with your art and then with yeah. how you feel about living in L.A. Yeah, yeah. At first, when I moved, so I didn't know anyone and everything was really new. For the first year, I was really discovering and meeting uh, new people. It was um, very new for me at every level. But right away, I really felt for the first time in my life that I could potentially be really me. Mm-hmm. I know it sounds a bit cliche because a lot of people say, you know, you come to L.A. and you have a dream and, you know, you can make it happen here. It's a cliche because part of it is true. <laughs> yeah, there's a certain mobility in the U.S. that there isn't in other places historically. And then especially in Los Angeles and in New York, but in a different way in Los Angeles, there's so many people doing so many drugs with so much money that it's very easy for someone to just be like, oh, today I have this wonderful job. Uh, you know, like, oh, I want to buy four of those paintings. Okay, great, you do that. Um, That's one aspect of it. <laughs> right? So someone essentially paid to have the first few ones made. When did you start showing in galleries and stuff? I started showing in galleries in 2016. Mm -hmm. So and how did they find your work? I called them. Ooh, that's pretty rare. You called yeah. them and said, I have some art, and yeah. they said, okay. <laughs> and so they said, okay, well... How did you okay, choose well, your galleries? It's kind of very random. A year before, so I was still working on the series, and I met somebody at a party, the owner of a gallery here in L.A. We were talking, and he was asking what I was doing, so I was telling him, you know, I'm working on, 
on a series of photos. And he told me just like this, okay, well, I give you my card. When you are done, call me. This is what I did. I called him. I don't know if he really remembered me. And I never showed him my work before. But I told him, hey, you told me to call you a year ago. So this is what I'm doing. Can I come and show you uh, my work? I did, and he gave me uh, my first uh, show, a solo show, which was really great for me. This is how I I started, and from there, I contacted different people, different galleries. Yeah, for the last two years, I have been showing it a bit all around. Yeah, yeah. I was also going to ask about the um, origami Mm -hmm. aspect. Did you ever do origami, or you just have these images in your mind, and so you started to make them? No, I I used origami for projects before, like at school, and I always loved the origami uh, design. And again, I think it's because I'm very drawn to simplistic shapes and very geometrical shapes. So again, for me, it made sense. But naturally, I I used origami in Mm. my work. But for my new series, the yellow one, they are based on origami shapes, Mm -hmm. but they are uh, built with uh, plexiglass. Yeah, so what are the origami, the ones that are not? Are those big pieces of paper? Yeah, those were papers. Oh, wow. So for example, the elephant, Mm -hmm. the bird, the fish. Yeah. The water lily, the peacock, all of them are made out of plexi. Right. Some of them kind of remind me of video game spaces because of the flat Mm. horizon. Mm. But you didn't have a TV very much, so... No, but I'm uh, naturally uh, drawn to very two-dimensional landscapes. Mm -hmm. For example, in Palm Springs, when you look at the mountains in the distance, they look almost as if it's um, a background. I shot an image actually over there, which is called Mars. Mars, yeah. Yeah, yeah. this one. Mm -hmm. Because it looks flat. Yeah. You know? But it's not. Yeah. And did you just put the sun in there? The the Mars, you know? Yeah. It looks like the figure is playing in the space. Like, they have a lot of freedom and movement in that space. It's easy to imagine each part is separate. You know, like, you know, the color forms where there's a... You've seen this toy? It's like a background with stickers of the different characters and you can put them wherever oh, you yeah, want. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. There's a certain sense of... Yeah, of, playfulness. Yeah, maybe. like this could go anywhere. And it's in between... Uh, it's real because it's a photo. Right. But it could uh, look fake too. It's in between. Yeah. But it's not fake in the way that so many photos are fake now. Yeah, no. Where it's... It's fakeness is it's round. Yeah, You know, like it looks round and real, but it's not. Whereas this is like, you take something that is real and round and make it seem flatter. It's almost like you're starting from the opposite direction. Like most artifice in commercial photography is to take something that is two-dimensional and make it seem three-dimensional. And you're taking things that are three-dimensional and trying to make them seem two-dimensional. And also locations could seem two-dimensional where I shoot. You mentioned your production job and also art school Mm -hmm. concerning what you make now. Did you learn more from that production job or did you take more from art school? It's a good question. Could you have just had the production job Mm. and been fine? Mm, I would say both. Because I definitely got inspired by uh, 
the production and you know those years where I was learning how to create like a final image and what it involved you know in the process but I also learn about for example the length that sometimes project could take to be final at school sometimes I would work on a project for a whole uh, period of six months you know so this is mm -hmm. something that I feel I discovered at school investment into um, the creation process yeah and then sometimes it's nice to like to know what you don't want to do you need to go through that to be like this yeah. isn't for me yeah definitely every time there's an artist who has a very serious grounding in the traditional techniques they always make the least traditional techniques yeah. in their work. You know, like the people who are, like your parents who are like very involved in the craft and then they understand it and then it's not as exciting to them anymore. Whereas yeah, yeah, the people yeah. who are outside of that discover yeah, so, the technique mm -hmm. in a way that is, it stays exciting for them because they're getting their, they don't have it to start with them. We talked about like your eyes are a virgin. So everything that you create that you haven't really seen in the past is so much more inspiring mm. than, you know, something that you might have discovered when you were really young. And If I have some tools and I haven't used one at all and I try it for the first time, and as soon as it starts to work, I'm like, this is great. And then a few hours later, I'll look at it and go... This isn't that good. Like, <laughs> like, but I was just so excited that, like, oh, I found the gray marker. No, you know, understand. like, it's like it's just the excitement that yeah. that works, that yeah. that creates an image. So you did this drawing of this house, the the tower. So the tower. And did um, you find actually, the location? I'll after? just bring you one sec. Okay. Okay. So for the people at home, the tower. It's on her site again. The maquette is this exact place. So, for example, this one yeah. is the only one in this series ah, okay. where I found the location. Okay. But I wanted a tower. Yeah. So I was scouting for. But you can look. Oh, I'm touching art. So those are all the maquettes. The style is a little bit like a fashion illustration. Mm -hmm. okay. I can show you, John, a little bit oh, if yeah. you want. But you can see them on my website. It's also original maquettes. If I was my mom, <laughs> I would say, don't you just want to drive around and find something and be like, that looks like something I would make. And just take a picture of that and make your life easier. <laughs> you got to make this drawing and you got to go out and find it. And I hope that the viewers know all of this, that you're doing all that, because yeah. that's the whole meat and potatoes of the whole thing. And it's one of my favorite parts, actually. When I imagine um, the scene at first, this is when I really uh, feel it, you know, and I, I get yeah very excited and it's like a little adventure, you know, for each image. So I have to find the location, I have to create all the props, the sculptures, the costumes. We have a little van and so we travel around to go and shoot and it's exciting too. If you were finding locations and then being inspired directly mm -hmm. by the location on purpose every time looking for places, you become more of a photographer in the sense that you're looking at the real mm. world and then you're imagining cropping it. I, I work this way if I'm doing a portrait in someone's house because I have to work at the house. I'm cropping it 
So I'm constantly considering the world yeah. and considering different ways to chop it up to make it look like something interesting. I do the opposite. Yeah, whereas your work is very much excited by you make up something completely imaginary in your head and then you can ignore the real world yeah. until it looks like the picture and yeah. then you get to pay attention. If you would have to pay attention the whole time looking for these locations, it would be a different work about a different thing. It wouldn't totally. be as utopian. It would be more optimistic in the sense of like, I imagine a dream that's great. I can find it if I work hard enough. Whereas the other way around is more like, the world is a lot of bullshit. And then I find a few things in it that are yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even though it might result in similar work. Yeah. It's less disrespecting the world and more respecting the imagination that you have before. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's <laughs> as if I project what I imagine onto the real world. And this is why I wouldn't really say that I'm a photographer because it's very rare that I see something in the real world and then it turn into one of my scene. It's the other way around. Yeah. Like in that movie Brazil where he keeps imagining the end scene. That's more of a nightmare though. That's not a joyful thing. I haven't Do seen seen the movie? this movie. No, uh, I haven't seen it's it. It's very dystopian. It's, it's dystopian. It's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> he has a dream throughout it and then at the end he's there and he dies, more or less. This also reminds me a little bit of motion captures and green screens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you make a film and then there's a part of it that's all blue or all green or someone's wearing a suit that's mm -hmm. all blue so that they can animate over top of it. And, and it's, it's super interesting that you say this. One of my next project is a feature film. Mm -hmm. And so I'm writing the scenario right now. I can't say too much because it's at the beginning of the process. Sure. But what you are saying is really part of uh, the techniques that I will use for this fiction film. Have you seen the film Holy Motors? Not it's sure. French. It's probably a different name in French because it's a French film, but this actor, the actor's job, he acts all day in different roles. So he gets into his car in the morning and he's dropped off at a location for 15 minutes and he plays a role. Then they pick him up and he goes to a different location. And, and each he, time he- And they're not really films, they're like real life. And he just acts like someone's father for a few while. And then he goes and doesn't, there's a scene where he does a motion capture. Through the movie, you're like, every scene is kind of, what's going on? It's a French film. <laughs> um, you know, in the classic kind of know, French film, know. you know? He goes into this studio, you're like, what is he going? And you see him put on the motion capture suit, and then you just see him go, huh, yeah, you know? <laughs> and so you're just looking at this guy wearing a strange suit, and then you see the footage where he's being animated into a video into game a or something. World. And then you go like, oh, it shows the motion capture imagery as a thing in itself. Yeah. And your pictures with the transparent things, it has something about showing a structure underneath. But also you become aware of everything else he does in the film as a construction. Yeah, a process. Yeah, but not in a cubist or constructivist way where it's a skeleton, but more like it's a fun mm -hmm. <laughs> construction. It's something exciting and, and glossy in its own way. There's something fun about stripping away these layers rather than exposing something that is hidden and frightening. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. When you reveal your process, what you're revealing is it's fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? it like adds a dimension, yeah. you know? And at the beginning, a lot of people, they didn't know how I would make the images. This is why 
we decided with my husband, Carl, to do this documentary that we have been filming for the last year. Mm. We filmed the whole process for the Midnight series. All our travels. Oh, cool. Every uh, part of the making of the series. Do you worry that the narrative of that becomes so important, and of course, having a podcast doesn't help, <laughs> that uh, <laughs> the image by itself... Loses. Uh, I don't think it will lose it, but do you ever worry that you assume the viewer that they don't get the whole story that you would really want just looking at the picture? I mean, I think they, they do, but do you ever worry that, oh, sometimes... Uh, from my experience just... so far, each time someone knows, discovers the story behind the final image, it adds an understanding to, it adds something that only serves the work, I feel. Cool. So far. Did you make these green no. shoes or you just found them and you're like, they're perfect? I found them. They were, yeah, absolutely perfect. So I used them actually for all the images. Hmm. So I would wear them only to shoot. Are you a fashion person? Pay attention uh, yes. To yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I like to create my own clothes. Eventually, it's something in a few years that I would like to develop. Mm -hmm. I just started showing all my costumes during my exhibitions, mm -hmm. too. I only show the costumes that I wore during the shooting of all the images. They are really uh, part of the whole story, too. I have a lot of pleasure making the costumes. Are you sewing and using patterns and all that kind of thing? No, I don't uh, sew. I only uh, design them and then I work with one of my neighbors here who is an upholstery person. Mm -hmm. He uh, helps me to develop all the structure and then I work with another of my neighbors who is specialized in metal. He helps me to shape the structure of some of my costumes. Because they're flat things that then yeah. become round. But yeah. for example, Moses broke and they are very structured. Yeah. This is this, is a plexi behind you, so the skirt. Have you ever seen those like early 20th century uh, cubist plays uh, with the costumes of the ballets and stuff with That's Oscar right. Schlemmer? I yeah, think yeah, 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 yeah. They seem like they have a yes, connection. Yes, 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 no, it's true, it's a connection, yeah. I'm basically like doing exactly what I imagine could be like an ideal world for me. Because right. I can do my costumes, I can work with plexi, I do the sculptures. It's true that it covers all the different medium and material that I love to work with. You're the queen. <laughs> <laughs> queen of paradise. What was your color called? Aqua Paradis? No, I called it Aqua Paradis, but it's a sort of turquoise. Um, turquoise color. So you can't copyright it then? Yeah. I could, no, right. I didn't yet, but <laughs> I could, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. The queen. How come that's not happening more often? I want to get a color and copyright you it. You could. I think it's pretty easy. You have to technically create it, I think. The, the people who invented Vanta Black, the blackest black, mm -hmm. like one artist gets the license. <laughs> what? It's almost like, you know, kind of obnoxious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't really create a new color. Well, you can create a new color plus yeah. surface, which is like Vanta Black is. It's a level of gloss. It's not a new hue. 
you yeah, show yeah, it on the screen, it, like it's material. like yeah. it's black and this is black. Yeah. But if you see it in real life, the kind of gloss and the amount of reflection is technically blacker than anything you would see yeah, before yeah, because yeah, it's yeah. essentially like black grass. Only miniature, and so the light goes in, but it doesn't bounce off at an angle yeah. where you see it. So it just looks like a hole in the world. Also, like there are new colors in the 20th century, like it's fluorescence were yeah, invented, fluorescent, and these neon colors iridescent. are. Some of them exist, like in some underwater glowing phosphorescent mm -hmm. creatures, but there are some new colors. Sometimes it's it's difficult, and once they're on a screen, they're all the same. So is this artist uh, Soulage? who mm -hmm. use the black color right. for all his uh, paintings. And the black that he uses is so intense, you know, and so deep. I, I thought it was him. Mm. But yeah, he not, might be yeah. the one artist yeah, who got yeah. to use it, you know. It's expensive. So I'm going to find an orange, make up my own tint and hue and gloss, <laughs> and I get to copyright it? I'm still on this. If you can, yeah, I, you so can. Like, I think if you technically create the stuff, like the pigment, I'm do it. you know, like right. then there you are. And yeah. you need to pay a bunch of money too, I think. It depends on the country you're in and yeah, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. It's like an invention, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're inventing a surface because it's a chemical that is a certain color. Yeah. Maybe because Carl. You want to bring is, Carl? Maybe. Yeah, yeah, of course. Speak. Carl, my husband, he's here working on the documentary. He could yeah, talk a little bit yeah, because he's working with me. For sure. Okay. Absolutely. Carl should get partial credit. This is John. Oh. Hey, hi John. Hello. What are some <laughs> things that you do in the work? Ren, obviously, she has the idea, she like creates this universe in her mind and she has this vision. From the beginning, I was helping her do what she wanted to do, like just make it real in a way. Once we started shooting like in the beginning, it became clear that this was turning into something big and serious, you know? And so we had to really work hard at it. And my role in that was to help with the technical side, basically, yeah. you know? So like helping with the cameras and helping with the thing. And the other big aspect was keeping her safe. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is yeah. the one that's like, out on Because <laughs> that's really the only place where I have any say in anything. <laughs> uh, she's really in control of everything else. Like the framing and the, everything in the image is, is her vision. Right. Where I really have a say, though, is like, no, I don't think you can go hang off that like chairlift cable, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like 40 feet up. Because I have to intervene. Very rarely do I ever say no completely, because we've done some pretty crazy stuff. But it's all within our limit. Like, mm -hmm. But we really go for it sometimes, you know. But some crazy stuff. Uh, <laughs> you heard about the water tower. Oh, yeah, the water tower. Yeah. I was very nervous for that, for her especially with the top that was like rusted a bit and had holes in it where she could like see in. So I'm just like, oh, and she's right on the edge too. And below that is just metal pipes. In heels, right? Yeah, in heels, <laughs> you know. And below, if she comes this way, and it was a bit windy and breezy too. And I'm just like, oh no, like. But it's for just, art. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I fully believe in her and, and her vision. And she has this incredible resolve to like really go for what she wants. And it always collides with how much are you willing to risk, you know? <laughs> She's willing to really risk it to get what she wants, you know? And like that's the water tower one's a perfect example. One that we did. The chair. The chair. I guess the chair. Okay, the I'll, I'll chair. do the chairlift one. Yeah. So, 
there's one where she's hanging off of a chairlift cable, and she she made this drawing with her maquette, you know. There's two chairs, colored white, too, and she's basically hanging off the sink from the cable. So we went up to Big Bear. This was in the summer, and we're kind of like up on the mountain, like Snow Summit and Bear Mountain. We kind of snuck our car out there, and we're driving around like up on the ski mountain, you know. And we're looking at different chairs, and if you're not familiar, these things are way off the ground. I mean, they're like telephone poles, and some of the cables are really high, 40 feet in the air. And she found one where there was these two white chairs, and they were just how she wanted with space, like facing away from each other, kind of at a, a good spacing. And it was about 40 feet up in the air. And she goes, like, that's the one I want. She points up at it, and I'm like, like I don't think this is, a, you know, this is not going to yeah, work. Yeah, I wanted them to be white, so chairs. Yeah. And it's not very common. Yeah, because you have, White like, chairs. Uh, all different, like, metal chairs, this, this color and that. So, so she's so like, well... that was such contempt. Green. <laughs> <laughs> Green chairs. They have no place in my work. So she goes, I'm going to climb up this tower, up the ladder, and then I'm going to just grab onto the cable and just, like, move out <laughs> onto the, into this thing. And I'm like, you have no idea how hard it is to just hang dead weight on, like, a thick metal cable also you know? like aren't there like people like who no, are in charge of yeah, making you not guy. do that yeah. like yeah. Yeah. their whole that, job is don't do that. that that's the risk on every shoot so that's not a particular one for this that's one where i had to say no we are not going up there so we kept scouting we kept driving around the mountain and lo and behold we find this cable that like right when you get onto the chair it's sort of low to the ground and then it goes up at an incline and kind of like i don't know 20 feet in the air or so there was a spot that matched what she was looking for with the colored chairs that she wanted. And we're like, oh my gosh, this is great. The way we had to pull it off though was a bit <laughs> a bit crazy too. So because she couldn't climb up the ladder to get on the thing, the place was low enough that we could pull the SUV under where she wanted to be. And then we're standing on the roof and I basically like lifted her, like catapulted her up to grab onto the cable. And then she would hang there and I'd pull the car out, run back, Go take the photo from the spot. I mean, it has to, you know. And the photo that. is like a very clean, perfectly lit photo. Yeah, like it well, doesn't I mean, have oh, any snapshot quality. These are all high. How I mean, long did it take to actually quality. like frame it and take the photo? Or you set up the no, camera? Yeah, yeah, the frame. And then, yeah. yeah, I know where I was going to shoot from. Right, right. And she had set up the frame how she wants it. And it sort of sets up itself in a way because yeah, when she makes and, the maquettes, yeah. like, it's, we already know what we're looking for. You know, we're not like trying to, you know, yeah, yeah. figure it out on the spot. And but, use the angle truth. Yeah, oh, and it has to be, so. you know, low and everything. So anyway, I pull the car out. I run back, taking the shot, get back in the car, go back under, get on the roof, and then, like, have to catch her. So and it, it, it's down. like graffiti except in daylight wearing day glow <laughs> clothes. <laughs> Topless wearing, like, a neon skirt, yeah. you know? And there's, like... On top of a car and hanging off a cable. There's no like hiding from this thing, you know. But I'm glad I didn't go to the first location I scouted because I really fell down. From... Oh, you did fall. Yes. Yeah, one, I, yeah, I like fell. the third one she fell. And actually, I didn't imagine it would be that hard to to just hold onto a cable. I thought, okay, well, <laughs> it would. <laughs> you never, never did a hang before. <laughs> yeah, that was not rehearsed. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it was lucky too. And just where she fell, I mean, she's wearing heels too. So if you fall, you're, I thought she was going to break both of her ankles. Yeah, or that's crazy. But actually, it she was landed okay. in like the softest, like, pile of puffy dirt you could ever imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so happy lucky. to uh, 
that we were shooting this image, you know, that it was happening. So on the moment, I don't really care if I'm like hurting myself or I, as long as we have the image, yeah. I'm happy. Nice. Yeah, so that was a fun story. So the documentary is going to be all rusty roofs and broken ankles. Like well, it's, <laughs> the, the documentary is the next level for the second series. I mean, these are pretty good stories, but we had to really up the risk factor for the second series. Yes. Yeah. Um, so there's like the church image where she's up on the tower. That's about 40 feet up, like mm -hmm. just with a cement sidewalk below. So, I mean, a lot of that's risky. So salt mine, we had to... Oh, where she's running down a salt mine, we, we had to basically find a salt mine <laughs> and break into it. <laughs> so it couldn't, be, it couldn't be snow. No. Like you couldn't find a place where there was snow. I mean, I, I already shot in the snow for one of yeah. my previous series. I really wanted to uh, experiment with uh, salt. It has this uh, very reflective dimension mm. that is actually more reflective than uh, snow. Mm -hmm. It has also like a texture that is very uh, specific. Right. Yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> running up and down on the salt. It's very, salt it's like very little... steep, and you're at a real oh, yeah. angle, steep. like running. It's like more than 45 degrees, and you are jutting in the photo yeah. at an angle. Yeah, it she was, was running uh, down full intense plate. in heels. Yeah. And but, it was burning too because the salt. If so again, this is kind of like you're doing a daredevil skate trick on a surface that will go away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that isn't stable in heels. And surprisingly sharp, like the granules of salt, they're not like salt how we think of it. You know, they're these big- They're crystals. Yeah. Gra gravelly crystal yeah. chunks. They're really solid on the surface. You actually can't even break through it sometimes. To climb uh, the mountain, we had to- uh, Break through break it. Through. Like, you know, how, did, really. how did you? You'll see it in the how documentary. How did any uh, someone? You know, <laughs> right, oh, trust yeah, me, this is film. all fully documented film. Cool for the future yeah. film. You guys are touching on this a lot, but the theme of laboring for beautiful moments. Every image is a beautiful moment. There's the layer of it takes a lot of work. It has to be a wall with nothing on it. It has to be a certain size. It has to be a certain uniform color. And then there's the underlayer of to get that shot, you have to do a lot of labor to set it up. But then there's like the final layer of there's always at least one thing in the subject that shows a continued labor. It's like, okay, we found the perfect place. I've made a giant origami alligator or whatever that is, yeah, yeah. and you're like, come on, we're having, we're, we got to do a beautiful moment. And the difficulty of having to climb that in heels, but there's this final, like, last reaching of, like, yeah. I have to do this labor just to get the but shot. But the, the labor in the picture always looks so utopian. Like, well, oh, this is a this, beautiful moment. But it and also, it's, a, it's, it's light, it's breezy. In production, when you're trying to get a picture of someone swinging a tennis racket, and in the picture, it's like, ah, I'm smoking cigarettes and, <laughs> and I hit this. It's so easy and light. We do this every Sunday. But in the real production, yeah. you're like eight, 19, 20 times, <laughs> 21 <laughs> times. My toes are bleeding. Do it again. Do it again. Because so much of it could be digital. I don't at all think of these stories as being behind these images. Yeah. Like if you say, oh, some of them are real or parts are real or it's real, I'm like, okay. But I don't look at any of them and go, oh, that must have been dangerous. Like they look artificial enough yeah. that that never occurred to me. And then I go, oh shit, that isn't like a little toy train set cables. I guess we're so used to film 
showing us incredibly dangerous things that no one left the room to do that we don't remember that it's real yeah, it's or like there can be done. People take that for granted. And if you want to experience beauty on a regular basis. I would agree with that. If you're sitting in a green screen room, like in a studio, things that we're used to, these actors doing, you know, impossible things, flying out of buildings and landing on planes, who, who knows? But there's no real danger involved. The feeling is that it doesn't convey through the actor, through the scene, any real danger. When she's up there, when she's hanging on the keyboard, when she's up on the billboard, you know, running down a salt mine, she's physically doing it. And that feeling, I think, comes through. And to add on to that, to have the documentary, which we thought would be really important, so people could understand and say, oh my God, this is real. And they can see, like you said, all the effort that has to go into it. And her determination and her vision to like not compromise. Like if she wants a, a salt mine mountain, like we're going to find this thing no matter how long it takes. And sometimes it takes like a year, two yeah, years yeah. sometimes. I mean, you know, it's cool. And I think everyone's really surprised and like awed when they see that or hear about the story that it takes to make them, you know. Yeah. And it all comes together and I think makes sense and makes a big impact. The performative aspect of what she's doing, like it is a temporary thing. These places don't exist anymore. The footprints are gone on the salt thing. Every part of it is temporary and gone and she performs it and is able to capture it in an image, but it, it is gone. Like no one's ever gonna see that sand dune like that. No one's ever gonna see that salt like that or any of this, you know? The performance part and the living in the scene is I think one of the most incredible parts of her work and really conveys that feeling, you know? Thank you guys yeah. both so much. You've been really generous with your time. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Nice meeting you, John. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of Weed Art. Check out our guest, Glenn Pelladi, who has solo exhibitions for her Midnight Photo Series in Miami and Paris. Along with the photos, there will be excerpts from the documentary Queen of Paradis, directed by Carl Lindstrom. The Miami show is at the Markowitz Fine Art Gallery. It's happening October 18th to the 25th, with an opening reception on the 18th. The Paris show is at Gallery Catherine et Andre Hug. It's happening from November 8th to December 8th, with an opening reception on the 8th. Also, the documentary Queen of Paradis, which follows the making of Paradis' latest photo series, Midnight, will be released in 2019. There's a sneak peek trailer on YouTube, and we'll have a link to that in our podcast notes. And guess what? Ren is on the cover of Artillery Magazine this month, so check that out. You'll find it at LA Galleries, or you could subscribe. And get it on your front porch. Go to artillerymag.com slash subscribe. To just connect with us or see images from the artists that we are talking about or the ones that they talk about during their interview, you can hit us up on our Instagram, which is... At we Eat Art. You can support this podcast by liking us on Twitter at, at we Eat Art. Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. That would be very cool. If you want to be unbelievably supportive, please subscribe or tell a friend. Also, John has more of my artwork at my Instagram page, which is John Mejias Pepping. And don't forget, we have a Patreon. Patreon. Please consider becoming a patron. Then you will be one of our supporters with your donations. You'll get exclusive episodes, t-shirts, stickers, all sorts of great things. Go to patreon.com backslash weed art. Weed art is produced by Paping and Mnemonic Recordings. Yeah, baby. Our sound producer, engineer, and editor is Justin Asher. Oh, I'm touching art.